It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're going to overcome this. And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech. Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore together how democracy can overcome extremism in a challenging new era. We are sitting down with folks who have dealt with extremism firsthand. Mayors, prosecutors, faith leaders, activists, journalists. Together, their stories provide important clues to how democracy can and must rise to this challenge. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Mary McCord is a former federal prosecutor who took an action in the wake of the violent Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that makes her a key example of the idea guiding this podcast, that just as extremism in America is homegrown, the norms and institutions of American democracy can and must be marshaled to deal with it. Along the way in this interview, you'll get a brief history lesson into why America's founders wanted to protect the new country from homegrown violent groups like today's militias. And you'll hear a bold new idea Mary is fighting for, a federal law that would, for the first time, make domestic terrorism a federal crime. It might surprise you to realize it's not. I have known Mary for a while, but was really blown away in this interview by how brilliant her work is and how the law, in the hands of people like her, requires all of us to fight for it. It's an amazing story of how democracy can innovate against hate by a leader quietly but steadily working to stop those who would take down democracy from within. I hope you find Mary McCord's story and the ideas she stands for as inspiring as we did. Thanks for listening. You know, really at a personal level, Mary, you could have gone down any number of paths in the law, especially ones where there's a lot of money and a lot of different kinds of clients. What drove you to, you know, over the decades, really, to work on these matters for the public? What, what, what keeps on? My kids ask me this question you. all the time. Why didn't you go make a million bucks, Mom? <laughs> so I spend a lot of time at work. But the reason is because I have always felt like the work I was doing is important 
If you're at a law firm, you're also going to spend a lot of hours working, but it might not be as satisfactory and you might not feel as much like you're contributing. And that's no knock on people at law firms. It's important work and it has to happen. But if I don't care about the outcome, that's just not very fulfilling to me. And the beauty of the work I did as a prosecutor is I didn't really have a client. I mean, yes, the United States was a client, but I could use my own judgment. And if I thought the case was a righteous one that should be brought and I had the evidence to support it, then we brought the case. But I always felt that I was doing what was right for the people I served. When I started feeling that was at risk at the Department of Justice because of new leadership there, I thought I have to find a way to continue to feel good about everything I do. And representing the city of Charlottesville and people here and getting a just result, everything that we get involved is something that we feel is important, is motivating, and I never felt like I just wasted 16 hours working on it. Now let's talk about Charlottesville. When the city made the national news during what is called the Unite the Right event, which was an invasion by alt-right members and white supremacists and white nationalists on August 11 and 12, 2017, where were you that weekend? Friday night, we had the news on. And actually, I on Twitter, one of uh, the reporters that I'm friends with, um, Del Wilbur, was tweeting pictures and videos of the march through the university grounds. And I just kind of couldn't get it off my mind, because then as the day wore on, and then of course, it ended in the tragic, tragic killing of Heather Heyer and injury of so many other people. And of course, a helicopter crash also that killed some law enforcement officials. I just kept thinking about it because commentators started to talk about it seemed like, you know, because of the First Amendment right to assemble and right to free speech, local authorities had limited things they were able to do. And in response to people's complaints about the amount of heavy weaponry, including assault rifles that were out in Charlottesville and at the place of the rally that day, there were people talking about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. It almost seems like people were saying that our Constitution protected what we saw at the Unite the Right rally. And I knew that not to be the case. Mary then started telling me about this idea, kind of a light bulb moment, if you will, of using a 200-year-old law in Virginia's Constitution to fight the modern-day alt-right. The law was designed in a time when a young country was really worried about roving militia groups. I actually went on to Lawfare, a web page that publishes a lot of national security and public safety related legal writing to write about domestic terrorism, to write about the fact that James Fields plowing his car into the crowd of counter-protesters was an act of domestic terrorism or appeared to be an act of domestic terrorism and should be treated that way. And I saw a post by Philip Zellico. He's a history professor here at UVA who had been a constitutional and civil rights lawyer in the South working with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And the point of his short article was, in the past, decades ago, he and others had relied on state anti-private paramilitary laws and state anti-private militia laws to get injunctive relief, meaning court orders, to prevent certain militia groups that were affiliated with the KKK, prohibiting them from engaging in that coordinated armed use of force. 
And I read with great interest the fact that he had been successful. He and the Southern Poverty Law Center had been successful in Texas in a case where the militia wing of the KKK was harassing and threatening Vietnamese fishermen. And they'd also been successful in North Carolina getting court orders against the militia wing of the KKK there for their threats and harassment and abuse of African Americans. And Professor Zelico pointed out that Virginia has a constitutional provision that says in all cases, the military shall be under the strict subordination of the civilian government, which essentially translates into you can't have rogue private militaries. And also there was a state criminal anti-paramilitary activity statute. And so immediately after chatting with Professor Zelico, our small team of lawyers just started digging into the research. You know, can we bring a case under these state authorities? So why are those laws in place in these states? originally. If you look at the constitutional provision, it dates back the longest. It's in the 1700s. Virginia was, of course, one of the original state constitutions. And this anti-private militia provision was included in that first constitution. And in fact, was then replicated. 48 other states have this almost verbatim identical provision. And the fear then was, think of us, we're coming right out of our independence as a country, and states did not want to have to worry about rogue militia that didn't report up through the state government. And in fact, this provision was meant to ensure the right of all citizens to live free from the fear of an alien soldiery commanded by men who are not responsible to law and the political process. You are probably wondering if these laws were on the books, if they were in the Constitution of Virginia, how come they haven't been used before? The other statute we relied on is an anti-paramilitary activity statute that exists in Virginia and in 25 other states. And it's a criminal statute that criminalizes the organizing of two or more people together to use firearms or any technique capable of bodily injury or death in furtherance of a civil disorder. This group of statutes, there's 25 states that have these, this was passed sort of in the late 70s, early 80s, as the KKK in the U.S. was starting to open up training camps. And that was sort of the original genesis there. But the statute also forbids practicing in these techniques. And so our argument, of course, of using it in Virginia was when they are out at the civil disorder, using Using these techniques, what more could you possibly be doing to practice them in, in furtherance of a civil disorder? The other type of statute that exists, and it exists in 28 different states, dates back just to post-Civil War, and that is an anti-private militia, also a criminal statute that forbids the organizing as military units to parade or drill with firearms in public. So why have they sat on the shelf and not been used? I think people, frankly, are unaware of them. They are historical in nature, except for the more recent one that was passed thinking of a particular threat from the KKK, which frankly subsided in the ensuing couple of decades. Mm. But what we've seen is it's raising its ugly head again. We're seeing calls for private militias to train in encampments. Now, some of these private militias don't have the white supremacist purpose. I'd still say they are in violation of the Constitution and statutes. But the ones that are even more dangerous, arguably, are those that exist in order to promote and support white supremacists or other extremist positions. Mm. 
Mary and her team at Georgetown University then started doing what lawyers do best, which is researching what these guys were actually doing. So what we did at Georgetown is we started really doing the research into what evidence could we gather to support that they actually were organized as private paramilitaries. And a lot of things contributed to this. We spent just literally hours and hours and hours scanning all of the internet for photos, videos, audios, podcasts. And you'd be surprised, I think, because many of these groups were proud of what they did. Uh, Jason Kessler was incredibly proud of the fact that this white supremacist movement had stepped off of the internet into the physical space, was no longer just a meme. And this stuff, their own words, their own videos, provided the evidence we needed. But after the Unite the Right rally, Unicorn Riot was able to dump out into the public internet just hours and hours and hours of chats that were used. This is a free chat and audio platform that was used by the organizers of the rally to organize, to spread the word, to make, to do all of their planning. And suddenly all of these were made available on the internet. The effect of a court order using a judge to announce an order that has the force of law that's enforceable behind it. Talk about what resulted from the lawsuits and why that was so important in keeping Charlottesville safe. So originally we sued 23 different defendants, individuals like Jason Kessler, Elliot Klein, who had been leaders of various organizations, and then organizations themselves, like the four biggest white supremacist organizations that showed up there, the Traditionalist Workers Party, Vanguard America, League of the South, National Socialist Movement. Some of them, they were outraged at first. Oh, we're going to fight this. They did fundraising campaigns to pay lawyers fees, but not all of them were able to obtain counsel. Over the first few months after we filed the lawsuit and we started to, you know, have court appearances and issue discovery, meaning uh, requests for information, it's a legal way of getting evidence from opposing parties. The lawsuits also ended up having an effect on so-called neutral militias. As the case progressed, some who were not able to obtain lawyers, and this in particular were the private militias that claimed to be neutral, that claimed to be just there to be protecting the rights of others, realized they really didn't want to have anything to do with Jason Kessler anymore. I think hmm. they realized they had taken a big hit publicly for protecting the white supremacists in Charlottesville. They also just had not come up with the funding to hire lawyers. And one day when I was in Charlottesville for a court hearing, several of the leaders of several of those groups came down to Charlottesville. We had a conversation. They said, we're not interested in coming back. And I said, would you agree to that in a consent decree that the court would sign? They said yes. And within a week's time, four organizations and their leaders had agreed to a court order not to return to Charlottesville ever as part of a unit of two or more people acting in concert while armed with any type of weapon. So I then wanted to turn the conversation to one of Mary's pet causes. It might shock you to realize there is actually no federal law defining and criminalizing domestic terrorism. For instance, Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, he was not prosecuted as a domestic terrorist because there is no law to enable that. 
and Mary thinks this should change. We have international terrorism statutes. We even have statutes that uh, would apply domestically that are under our, the U.S. Code Chapter for, for terrorism offenses. But what we don't have is a statute that prohibits, as a matter of federal law, makes it a federal crime to commit essentially a violent act in the United States, murder, kidnapping, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault with a vehicle, when it's done for the same type of intimidation or coercion that international terrorism is done for. When that's done based on domestic ideological causes, whether they're political, racial, social, personal, whatever they are, I mean, there's a crime, but there's no federal terrorism crime. And so I have a number of reasons why I think that there should be a federal crime of domestic terrorism. First of all, to put it on the same moral equivalence with international terrorism. When someone commits a crime here, and I should be clear, international terrorism doesn't mean overseas. It can be here in the U.S., like what we saw in San Bernardino, what we saw at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. That is terrorism in the U.S., but it was on behalf of a foreign terrorist organization, ISIS. And so because it's on behalf of a foreign terrorist organization, it gets prosecuted as a federal crime, and the person is labeled from day one a terrorist. What are the real-world implications? Why does it matter? When there's no federal domestic terrorism crime, you get a crime like the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, as heinous, as awful, as as much about intimidation and coercion as the Pulse nightclub or San Bernardino shootings were, but it's based on anti-Semitism, not trying to adhere to a foreign terrorist organization. So there's no federal terrorism crime that applies to it. And lots of others have been committed with guns. In Charlottesville, James Field used his car. All over the world, people have been using vehicles to commit crimes of international terrorism, and they get prosecuted as terrorists. So this would put it on a moral equivalence. Why does that matter? Because aren't there, you know, it's still a crime. Like James Fields is being prosecuted. Uh, I expect he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. In fact, he's already been right, sentenced. Right, he's been sentenced, right. Um, and the Tree of Life shooter, he's being prosecuted for hate crimes that carry life sentences. I think it's important that we as a government, as a U.S. government, and as an American people recognize that when your crime is committed with the intent to intimidate and coerce, it's no longer a local crime. It's not just a local murder. It's not even just a hate crime. It, you know, He did not commit that shooting just to send a message to the people at that synagogue. He committed that shooting. That was to send a message just as big as what those who do things on behalf of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi do. What would be the possible opposition to this now? The opposition is that we have a First Amendment right here in the U.S. to have unpopular views, and the foreign terrorist organizations don't have that First Amendment But not right. ones that intimidate or coerce well, a population through action. So imagine for a minute you've got an organization where it's an anti-Semitic organization or it's an anti-African-American organization, and you have lots of people who believe in white supremacy and they want to exercise their rights to free speech. If they are not threatening, intimidating, coercing, inciting violence, they have a right under our Constitution to say those vile things. I mean, this goes back 40 years ago to the marches in Skokie, Illinois by the KKK. So you might have a strain of that organization that believes in achieving its goals by violence. If you could really isolate that or you could find out that that organization really is there for one purpose only, just to achieve its ideological goals by violence, 
you could maybe designate a terrorist organization. But it raises alarm bells, rightfully, by even civil rights organizations who are afraid that that kind of authority would be misused by law enforcement as other authorities have been, certainly if we look back in our history of, of the in the U.S., have been used against other organizations that are just politically unpopular in ways that would be, you could imagine, Black Lives Matter and some of these other organizations that are worried about that. What would the advantages be of creating this law? So in addition to sort of putting domestic terrorism on the same moral plane as international terrorism, if you make a crime a federal crime, it means you've got more resources going toward federal law enforcement looking to prevent domestic terrorism offenses. They've done an unbelievably good job since 9-11 in preventing international terrorism offenses, but now you'd have that kind of emphasis on domestic terrorism. And then finally, I think it's important to constantly say, we're not talking about giving any new law enforcement authorities to the FBI that they don't already have. And you could have oversight also to the extent that people are worried about this being too fraught with possibilities of misuse. There are ways to protect about that. But this isn't only about Charlottesville. It affects the whole country. So I wanted to hear from Mary how other cities can use this approach. So we've always thought that the use of these uh, statutes and constitutional provisions would almost be better off to be used proactively before an event mm -hmm. in order to prevent violence as opposed to an after-the-fact lawsuit. And so the existence of these anti-paramilitary activity statutes gives a city and law enforcement and the mayor's office in an area where there's a planned rally that they expect to be violent. It gives them the basis to issue reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on that rally. And that means like prohibit weapons, keep people separated, have an area for protesters and an area for counter-protesters with separate checkpoints, have them go through magnetometers. These are things that apply to equally to everyone involved. And then she said something really interesting about the lessons to be drawn from fighting international terrorists like ISIS and the work ahead with these domestic terrorists we're facing today. A few years ago, when I was just moving over to the National Security Division at DOJ, it was early 2014, and in June is when the Islamic State declared its caliphate, right? And at the beginning, they were using all kinds of American social media and platforms to spread their message. And it took some time, but eventually, companies like Twitter and Facebook and others started to take some action to remove those platforms. It's taken even longer for them to realize they can do the same thing with respect to people that espouse domestic extremist views. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, they're starting to realize maybe the same approach can be used with for domestic extremist causes. And we are starting to see. And part of that is a partnership. Government needs to be providing information to the private sector so that they understand the threat. And part of it is them then realizing we've got each other's backs. We can take a stand against extremism and we can deny our services, our platforms, our uh, products to people espousing extremist views that have a potential for violence. So, Mary, what are your greatest fears right now for where we go as a country? Well, 
this has been a difficult couple of years because I think we have seen a resurgence of white supremacist and extremist views domestically that maybe always existed, but frankly was kind of buried mm-hmm. underground. And unfortunately, with this current administration, I think some of these groups um, and individuals who espouse those views have felt the freedom and actually support from the highest levels of our government to go ahead and be a lot more open about those extremist views. And that might be okay as a matter of just free speech rights, but the problem is they've taken it, as we saw in Charlottesville and as we've seen elsewhere, they've taken it to the extreme of using violence in support of achieving those views. Even if the vast majority of people with extremist views wouldn't use violence, there are some who will. And those people are motivated by what they see uh, others saying and doing. They feel just like people who are drawn to international terrorist causes, Islamist extremism. They're vulnerable to domestic extremism the same way they're vulnerable to Islamist extremism. It gives them a higher purpose. It gives them a calling. They find all these people, whether it's online through social media or going to something like the Unite the Right or the White Lives Matter rally in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or they can go to that. They can see there are others like me and they feel emboldened and empowered. Until we have real leadership in the country saying no to that, that is not okay. It makes me worried that it just continues to grow. Other side of the coin, what are your greatest hopes? Uh, I do think, as often happens when when bad things happen in this country, good people come out to organize together to counter it. And you had just like after, you know, the summer of 2014 with beheadings by ISIS finally brought together an international coalition, public, private, to try to counter that. I think you're now seeing in the U.S. and also in some of our European countries starting to see government officials and private sector come together to say, we have to counter this. We have to show we're better than this. Uh, you know, we're bigger than this. We can counter it. We can't just let it fester and, and grow. So regular person looking at all this, who's not a lawyer and not a judge and not a legislator, do you have any thoughts for what they can do, how they can get involved, how they can make a difference? So I think there's a number of different things. One is if you encounter someone who you think might be on the path of radicalization toward violence, whether mm-hmm. it's a student and you're a teacher or whether it's, you know, you're a coach and it's a player on your team or, you know, you're in law enforcement and you see somebody in the community and something doesn't seem right to you about this person. It's really incumbent on you to do something about it. Doesn't mean pick up the phone and call the FBI, but you need to start to talk to other people. There are interventions. There are people that can talk to those who are on that path of radicalization. And we've seen this for people who track toward Islamist extremism. And we see with people on this path toward joining a white supremacist group. Oftentimes, in the case of international terrorism, studies have shown that up to 70% of the time before somebody commits a terrorist act, there was somebody in their orbit, a family member, a friend, a teacher, a coach, who thought something was wrong and didn't do anything. It's hard. It's hard to do. Uh, It's hard to say, well, what do I say to somebody I think is on that path? But say something. That's the micro level. The macro level is put pressure on private companies. Say, you know, we don't want you serving extremists. Mm. Um, We don't want you serving them, whether it's extremism motivated by foreign terrorist groups or motivated by domestic ideologies. (laughs) 
Mary McCord is a former national security prosecutor at the Department of Justice under President Barack Obama. She also helped found the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzyk. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced the musical interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening.